And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Monday, and we survived Taylor Bowl. Welcome to the program, everybody. We are live from the bunker. Yes, we survived the Taylor Bowl. I did not watch the game. I have not sat and watched a whole lot of the commercial. I haven't watched really any of the commercials. We do have a couple of trailers to talk about. And some breaking, breaking big heapum comics news, if this is accurate. So we'll get to that here in just a minute. My name is Jason Hutt. I'm the editor here at SciFiForMe.com. Sci-Fi for Me TV and the Sci-Fi for Me Radio Network, which is available on a number of different podcast platforms. You can listen to this show as a podcast. We are broadcasting live to YouTube, Odyssey, and Rumble. So those of you who listen to this show as a podcast, do uh, do check out the live video every now and again. Uh, the live chat is open on all of those uh, places. However, the widget tool thing that lets me pull in comments is not working again. I don't know. I, I've I've reported a bug, so we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens there. They did an update, and it's not it's not doing right. So anyway, in the meantime, you can leave a comment. I am paying attention to the chat over here. But uh, uh, it's going to be, I'm going to have to be glancing uh, weird and don't have, well, no, now that I think about it, I can put it, put it right here. Since I'm doing that and not pulling it in, I can just set it, there we go. All right. Now, the live chat is open, those widgets. If you're not here with us live, that's okay. You can leave a comment. Um, you're probably coming over from watching Midnight's Edge or something else. So that's okay. You can leave a comment even if you're not here with us live. You can leave uh, leave us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. Join us over on Discord. So uh, lots of different ways that you can connect with us. Of course, all the different social medias and whatnot. All right. Uh, let us get to a couple of things here really quick. Um, the the big the big bowl game was yesterday, the big Taylor Taylor bowl game yesterday. The only it doesn't matter who scored the most points. We all lost, and the State Department wins, right? I mean, if you if if that's the that's the pr- current prevailing conspiracy theory. All right. But we did get memes out of this, and one in particular has been uh, my favorite <coughs> with regard to uh, 
Mr. Mr. Kelf, Mr. Kelsey yelling at uh, at his boss in what others are saying could be, you know, hey, if I did this, I'd be on the bench. If I did this, I wouldn't be playing anymore. So we've got Mr. Kelsey here looking at a rather rather like he's having some anger management issues. And of course, everybody's like, Taylor, girl, you, you got to worry about this guy now. Look at this red flag, red flag. So he's yelling at his boss, but I like that people are making it a meme already. And this one here, Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps. I like that one. <coughs> All right. Uh, let's say hi to everybody in the chat. Cam's here. Death Angel Shadows here. Michael's here. Keely's here. Uh, and Keely, let's let's keep the let's keep the linkage to a minimum today if we can. Critical Blast is here. Hey, RJ. He is asking who got more airtime, the players on the field or Taylor's box seat. Well, <sighs> uh, yeah. I'd say half and half. I didn't watch the game, so I don't know. I'm I'm sure that every time Mr. Kelsey made a play, we had a ca- I I'm sure there was a camera dedicated to that area of the audience. Because of course it was. And I find it really telling you know, those of you who who are saying the game was rigged. I I don't speak to that one way or the other but i do find it interesting that in the last last play of regulation game uh oh cam says they didn't cut to her that much okay well that's good but i do find it interesting that the last play of the game in regulation time uh mr mahomes passes the ball to mr kelsey who is covered by the way by a defensive player in the meantime you have another player his number is four i have no idea who it is uh but he was wide open in the middle of the field not five yards from the goal line i mean he's sitting there waving his hands like hey i'm right here and it has me wondering okay did they did they tell mahomes Kelsey has to win the game for us. That's the script. And it didn't go that way, did it? Uh, I do see a name in the chat I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen. Taylor Swift greater than Disney Star Wars MCU. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Uh, Keeley says, Todd is still waiting for the Cowboys to win another Super Bowl. Well, that prompts me to... uh, throw to Todd. Everybody say hi, Todd. He is still in his <coughs> Cowboys regalia. Meanwhile, this same weekend, the Directors Guild passed out their awards and uh, Christopher Nolan uh, wins for Oppenheimer. Uh, let's see. Judd Apatow hosted the ceremony. This is Hollywood Reporter. Uh, Christopher Nolan took home the top prize at the Directors Guild of America Awards on Saturday night. 
Saturday night's all right for fighting, by the way. Earning his first DGA award for the historical epic Oppenheimer. Past Lives director Celine Song won the Michael Apted Award for first feature. Accepting the award, Song promised to, quote, continue to keep directing films for as long as I can. I promise to keep going. Uh, uh, Mstislav Chernov won for his Oscar-nominated documentary 20 Days in Maripol. In the TV categories, The Last of Us, Peter Hart won for directing the acclaimed third episode of the HBO drama, Long, Long Time. That's the, I believe that's the uh, the episode that focused on the two side character gay couple thing. The Bear creator Christopher Storer won for directing the Hulu comedy series and Lessons in Chemistry's Sarah Adina Smith won for directing the Apple Limited series. I, it doesn't say what categories these are. Um, so, okay, congratulations, uh, congratulations to the winners of the Directors Guild Award. <coughs> We've got a casting announcement, Lena Hetty, uh, going to lead the action thriller Ballistic with Amy Beth McNulty co-starring. This is, uh, set to reprise her role as an avenging mother. The 300 star will play alongside Amy Beth McNulty in the project about a mother who works for an ammunition manufacturing company but is devastated when her son serving in Afghanistan is killed. Despair gives way to rage and a desire for revenge when she discovers it was a bullet from her factory that was responsible for her son's death. So this doesn't sound like it's going to be anything genre-related. It'll be a revenge mother thing. But how is she reprising her role as an avenging mother in Ballistic, because this is not a sequel to anything. That's badly written there, Andreas Weissman. That's all I'm going to say. All right, let's, uh, let's do this, because this is breaking, this is breaking news. Because this is the thing, I'm, yeah, we'll go through the trailers and, and whatnot, do some reaction to the trailers. They're not really all that interesting. I don't care very much. But this... This I do care about, and I think some of you might as well. And as loath as I am to quote or cite Rich Johnston over a bleeding cool, as much as it grinds my gears to cite Rich Johnston over a bleeding cool, as much as it sticks in my craw, to sight bleeding cool. I have not been able to find this anywhere else. So, one, take this with a grain of salt because I have not been able to find this corroborated anywhere else except the source that Rich Johnston is citing. Ish. So, and because so, some of it's behind a, a private. Facebook group, so I haven't been able to to verify as much of it as I'd like. But it appears that we're getting Amalgam back. Here is the headline. Marvel and DC Comics to republish their crossovers including Amalgam. 
bum, bum, bum. Everybody's like, what? At least I was. This was published this morning. I'm not going to go through all of it, but it does. uh, Johnston lists the various different things. Back in the 90s, this was a big thing. Marvel and DC, every now and again, would publish cooperative ventures where their various different superhero universes would collide and cross over and they'd tell stories using characters from both publishing houses. Silver Surfer, Superman, Batman, Punisher, Batman, Daredevil, Batman, Captain America, Marvel versus DC. That was the big, the big, big crossover thing. It was written, drawn by George Perez. And then we had the big one, the big mashup, Amalgam Comics. Now, for those of you who were not around back then, Amalgam Comics was this really fun thought experiment wherein characters from DC Comics and characters from Marvel Comics were mashed up together, merged Tuvix-style And we got all sorts of fun characters as a result. And there were quite a few of them. <coughs> but you had, uh, you had Super Soldier, Clark Kent, who was a combination of Superman and Captain America. You had Dark Claw also known as Logan Wayne, who was Batman and Wolverine combined. You had Deadeye, which was Deadshot and Bullseye. Dr. Doomsday, who was uh, Dr. Doom, and Doomsday from, from DC. Dr. Strange Fate, which was Dr. Strange and Dr. Fate. Um, lethal... Uh, Sergey Minerva, uh, uh, Lethal was a mix of of Craven the Hunter from Marvel and Cheetah, Barbara Minerva from DC, and this was the male uh, thing. Night Creeper, the Skulk, combination of Solomon Grundy and Hulk, Spider Boy. Uh, Peter Ross, uh, an amalgamation of Superboy and Spider-Man, Ben Riley. You have <coughs> Amazon, Princess Aurora of Themyscira, who was Wonder Woman and Storm combined. Um, Professor Psycho, which was Dr. Psycho and Professor Power. You had uh, The Big Question, a combination of Riddler and Kingpin. The big question. See how that worked? I mean, there were a lot of them. J. Jonah White was a combination of Perry White and J. Jonah Jameson. There was a lot. There was a lot of stuff. The Canary, Black Canary and Mockingbird combined. Um, The Aquamariner, of course, Aquaman and Namor. So, I mean, there were a lot of of characters, and it was all mashed up in this big whole thing 
where they printed a run of comics and they did a story as if it was in the middle of all of these different, you know, long-term, long-running comics. They even had little little editorial boxes and say, see Amazing Spider-Boy, number 23, you know, those kind of things that would reference other issues in comics that never existed. Uh, Gramcast <coughs> asks, dude, are you riffing these off the top of your head? Sadly, no. <laughs> I had a list pulled up because I am a how-to-trend-broadcast professional. I can multitask. I do three things at once. Christopher Hopkins says, The Amazing Spider-Boy was pretty fun. Superboy Spider-Man, yes. But this was, this was, this was very well-received. It was a lot of fun. And it looks like, according to Bleeding Cool, it looks like we're getting everything republished. <coughs> uh, so, apparently, and this is coming from uh, what Johnson is, is citing here, in a private Facebook art collector group, which is why I can't confirm it, artist Barry Kitson, who had worked on a couple of these crossovers, posted Marvel and DC are collaborating on reprinting many of the amalgam titles, including Magneto and the Magnetic Men, and the crossover events, including the Batman Punisher books. To this end, they have asked for any extras they can include in the new versions. I don't have too many originals left, but if anyone on the group have any of the pages and are willing to share scans, please do let me know. In the meantime, one of the things I did uncover are these unused cover thumbnails for Batman Punisher. Hope you enjoy seeing them here first. So he, he posted them there, and then he posted them over on Instagram where you can actually see them. And it says here, this is, I mean, this looks like it, uh, at least this part of it, at least this part of it, I have been able to confirm. Here they are. These are the sketches on Instagram where Barry Kitson has posted this. But it looks like, and I haven't seen any, I haven't seen any solicitations here. I'm going to have to look it up because this news is just breaking today. So I'm going to have to go and see if I can find the solicits for these. But here are all. Here's a list. <coughs> here's a list of all of the of the Amalgam one-shots and the DC Marvel crossovers. If all of this is getting reprinted and republished, this is this is a good thing because of a couple of reasons. One, this stuff has been out of print forever, and they've been really hard to find. But the other thing is that it's an indicator that somebody... At DC and Marvel is talk they're they're talking to each other. And maybe somebody said, you know, we need something that people are actually gonna like, and maybe they'll buy it. Because you know we're in trouble, right? And if they're going to reprint the amalgam books. Maybe America is healing. I don't know. Now, the, the biggest concern that I have with that is making sure 
because I have seen a number of different comments on this this kind of thing. Making sure that the colors are accurate. This is this has been a huge thing, especially in the digital space. When you get reprints of older comics, the digital space, you're losing some of the some of the color accuracy, some of the tone of the original books. And I get it. Newsprint versus digital versus, you know, whatever. But if you're going to reprint these and if you're going to do them digitally and you're going to recolor them, one, you should you should keep as much of the original work as as possible out of respect for the people who worked on the book. But two, if you're going to recolor them digitally, then they need to get at, at, at the very least as close to the original artwork as possible. Because I don't want to open up a, a digital... I'm, I, I wouldn't be opening up a digital file anyway. But if they print this new stuff, the chances are they're going to be digitally recolored. Which means they're not going to be exactly the same as the originals. They're just not. But still, you youngsters get a chance to see what comics were like in the heyday, back in the before times. Because these amalgam stories were really fun. The the DC and Marvel crossovers were fun. You know, some some of the some of the best stuff. Yeah, you know, there was. A, I saw a, a thing the other day, uh, a page where the Teen Titans met the X Men. These were things where you're like, "Oh, this is this is a cool idea. This is a cool what if, right?" Mazer says, "Original, keep it original. Why the cheek? My generation deserves its own insert IP here." <laughs> Well, the thing is, it, the the idea that we're going to get these reprinted in any shape or form tells is is an indicator to me that this whatever this rift has been between DC and Marvel because DC and Marvel hasn't done they haven't done anything together collectively in years because of stuff what went on. With Joe Casada on the one side, Paul Levitz on the other side, all all of the all of the personalities that involved that were involved at the time, this arrangement cooled rather rather decisively, and they haven't done this at all. And I'm wondering whose idea this was to reprint this stuff. This is this is stuff that has not seen the light of day for. What, 30 years? I don't... Have we ever gotten a reprint of Amalgam or DC Marvel stuff? I don't remember. <clears throat> what if... <laughs> what, yeah, yeah, MS. Maybe Marvel and DC will team up for a movie. What if, what if Deadpool kicks open that door? Because there is a there is a Green Lantern gag in uh, in in the last in the last movie 
in the last Deadpool movie. So, you know, who knows? But I'm I'm very excited about this. Uh, you also have to think, too. <clears throat> uh, George Perez, who did the artwork for a lot of this stuff. Now, th- what could be going on, and Michael says, who died, wh- who was changed recently. George Perez died, what, two, three years ago? And... Following that, they did do uh, they did do a thing uh, where they republished the Avengers versus Justice League crossover a couple of years ago, and it was one of these you know memorial collective things, and I think it was a fundraiser or something. It, it was in honor of George at, at right after right after just as we were like, okay, he's about to go, and they republished this. And I would guess that it sold enough, and there's been plenty of online chatter about it over the years, you know, especially when that came back out, where they said, oh, maybe we've got a thing here. Maybe there's an opportunity here to, to sell some more books that are actually popular and people like. Who'd have thunk it? But we're going to get all – and uh, the way I'm reading this, it sounds like we're getting all of them. Maybe. Uh, Keely says, the reason why DC and Marvel will never team up is the same reason why you'll never see any Marvel animated shows and movies on Toonami. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, realistically speaking – you're not going to get anything like that because just just figuring out the rights alone would would drive lawyers to drink more than they do. Oh, oh, Death Angel Shadow saying coincidentally Hasbro has to report earnings tomorrow. No wonder they dropped the D&D dates press release today. What I missed this. I missed this. Did you uh, did you put that in the in the um, in the Discord? We'll have to we'll have to take a look at that and and take a look at that link. Watsy announced release dates. Okay, I will have to look at that under tabletop. Let me go and take a look. Ba 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 ba. Oh, wait, I'm in the wrong... I'm in the wrong one. I'm over on Gilded. That's not where I want to be. I want to be over here. Tabletop. Link. All right. Let's visit the site. Let's pull that up. For anybody who plays D&D... All right, so this is enworld.org, the headline. Thanks, uh, Death Angel Shadow. Watsy reveals the confirmed release dates of 2024's D&D slate. Eve of Ruin is the book. Save the multiverse from annihilation in this adventure for the world's greatest role-playing game. <coughs> All right, so Vecna, Eve of Ruin is out May 21st. The Making of Original Dungeons & Dragons, 1970-1977, June 18th. 
Wow, how are they going to do that? All right, so Vecna Eva Ruin is an adventure campaign for characters levels 10 to 20, high-stakes adventure, the fate of the entire multiverse hangs in the balance. Okay, you begin in the Forgotten Realms. The making of original Dungeons & Dragons. This is a history of D&D, the ultimate book showcasing D&D's inception, including Gary Gygax's never-before-seen first draft of D&D written in 1973, a curated collection of published fanzine and magazine articles contribute to the D&D's origin story. Each document is introduced, described, and woven into the story by one of the game's foremost historians, John Peterson. June 18th for that book. Um, interesting. Because uh, in the modern era, <clears throat> Gary Gygax is... Persona non grata, as is his son, Ernie. I'm actually surprised that Wizards of the Coast is doing this. Uh, is putting this book out to do anything, any kind of acknowledgement of Gary Gygax surprises me from, from Wizards of the Coast at this point. June 18th. All right, then we have Quest from the Infinite Staircase on July 16th. It's an adventure anthology. Uh, weaves together six classic Dungeons & Dragons adventures while updating them for the game's 5th edition. Interesting. Hey, let's go... Let's go... Let's go redo... <clears throat> let's go redo a bunch of stuff that people used to like. And maybe they'll like it again. Maybe they'll like us again. we got a 2024 Player's Handbook, September 17th. New Dungeon Master's Guide, November 12th. Well, why why would they why wouldn't they put the Dungeon Master's Guide out first? Monster Manual, February eighteenth, twenty twenty five. So, new books, and I'm wondering here if it means we're going to actually get physical books. Oh, you don't need the Dungeon Master's Guide to run the game. Okay. It's been a very long time since I've played. Very long time since I've played D&D. <clears throat> but I wonder uh, if, that means, uh, if that means physical books. Because with them having Microsoft people in charge, uh, the, uh, the whole microtransactions and the online stuff and everything else is really where they want to go. Uh, Michael says, also, where is Gygax's original IP stuff? <clears throat> Greyhawk? Uh, okay. That's a good question. It might fit under the, the, early, the early draft stuff. I, I'd have to go back and, and read all of that. But it's interesting that that actually kind of fits thematically with what we're talking about with Marvel and DC. All of these all these companies that own these classic IPs, these these classic story universes are sitting there going <clears throat> maybe 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 we need to find the stuff that these fans used to like and maybe we need to give them that. I am hearing some good stuff about uh, the ult the new Ultimate Marvel line, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which gives us Peter Parker married to uh, M Mary Jane, and they have a kid. 
So, 5.5 or 6 edition. <clears throat> is, is this a sign? And again, I, ha- I have not played D&D in a while. I haven't done anything comics in a while. I, I, I can't remember the last time I bought a comic book. But are these indicators that the companies are finally shook enough? We got to do something. We got to, what, what are we going to do? They're not buying anything that we sell. What are we going to do? Maybe we ought to sell what they'll buy. That's right, Gojira. Give the customer what they want. Crazy talk. It is. But you know what? It just might work. It's so crazy, it just might work. <coughs> uh, that's a good point. Death Angel Shadows says, These books must already be done, hence them laying off the staff that handles print material. Maybe. Either that or the books have been done. It, it could just very well be the, the all of it's going to be just digital. Maybe there won't be physical copies. There's got to be, though. I mean, you would have to, especially the the history book. You would have to think that they'd put they'd put a print edition out of that. Maybe a print on demand. I don't know. Uh, One man show on Rumble. Greetings. Good to see you over there as well. <clears throat> Are we buffering anywhere? By the way, I I wanted to double check and just make sure because I haven't seen anybody mention it. That I probably just jinxed it by asking. <clears throat> by the way. We are bouncing right at the cusp, right at the cusp of 2,500 subscribers on YouTube. Now, we last night, I was on Karate with Infinite Patience over on Culture Casino's channel, and we got to $24.99. But right, right as the stream was ending, we were at $24.99. And this morning we lost one. So right now we're at $24.98. We're that close to 2,500 subscribers. And if we can get there, and if we can stay there, then right now I don't have a guest on on Wednesday the 14th. And since it's Valentine's Day and and, and 2,500 subscribers means that you love us, you really like us, then maybe we'll do a 2,500 celebration stream. I don't know. But we got to get there and we got to maintain it. We got to hold at 2500. <clears throat> so, get the word out. Spread the spread the spread the love. We only need two more. Well, we need we need probably a good five more just to make sure that we stay over. But yeah, we're that close to 2500. I really wish my little chat widget thing was was working. Michael says we're we're he's he's got us on a PC and is buffering over there. Okay. I'm not seeing anything here and I'm not getting any any indication that we're having an issue, but uh you never know. It's YouTube. <clears throat> so hopefully everybody else is, is doing okay. On their streams, but yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this amalgam news. This is going to be fun, 
And especially if you've never read them, if you've never seen any of this stuff with all of these crossovers, you know, whether it's the mashup stuff with Amalgam or if it's just the crossovers between, you know, Marvel, DC, the Justice League, and the Avengers and all of that, they're fun books. They really are. Because it's that what if. It's like, oh, no, this would be kind of cool. What if. But and and it puts me in mind of the of the book that I just posted a review on wavelengths from Dan Dickholtz, which is because uh, Dan, Dan was a contributor at the old Starlog magazine, and those of us who are of an age will remember Starlog and Cinefantastique and Comic Scene and Fangoria and all these others. <clears throat> well. Dan and some of the other guys that were there at the time had stuff that didn't make it into the magazine that was, you know, well, maybe we'll put together uh, this, maybe we'll collect it all in another kind of a special edition thing. And they were speculating, well, what if this had happened instead of this? And that kind of stuck with him. So basically what he's done, <clears throat> he's created an alternate universe Starlog magazine. It's called Wavelengths. And Wavelengths magazine, in these various other frequencies, what he's using for his alternate timelines, gives us coverage of science fiction, fantasy, horror, action, entertainment in those universes. And what this book does, ostensibly, is uh, collects uh, articles and coverage from the November 2019 edition of Wavelengths Magazine, issue number 501. So basically, if Starlog had kept going, then here's what issue 501 could have looked like in these other dimensions. <coughs> and there are some there are some fun bits. Um I'm not going to give you a whole thing. I mean, I've posted the interview. Uh we recorded an interview with Dan. That's that's here on the on the channel so you can watch that, read the review. I recommend the book. It's fun, especially for those of us who know things and can sit there and go, "Oh yeah, that's that thing." Because some of us will remember, I'll give you for example, some of us will remember that Indiana Jones was not originally going to be played by Harrison Ford. When George Lucas and Steven Spielberg took their families to Hawaii on opening, opening weekend for Star Wars, they started kicking around this idea for this adventure guy. Kind of, you know, 1930s serial adventure like you know, Star Wars. And it wasn't going to be Harrison Ford. Indiana Smith was the original name. And originally they were kicking around the idea of Tom Selleck. That's right, Gojira. Tom Selleck was going to play Indiana Smith, Indiana Jones. And then didn't because he was doing Magnum P.I., but in this book, <coughs> Tom Selleck doesn't play Indiana Jones. But he does end up as the star who's discovered by Gene Roddenberry.
for Battlefield Earth. Uh, yeah, Battlefield Earth. Which ended up being Earth Final Conflict by the time it ended up on the air after Roddenberry died in this universe. I mean, it's just like... It, it's the little... It, and there are little nuggets throughout this whole book. You sit there and go, oh, that's cute. I recognize that. Yes, Michael. I, I'm, I'm familiar with Famous Monsters of Filmland uh, with Forey. <coughs> and Famous Monsters of Filmland was the inspiration for a lot of these magazines, not just Starlog. Uh, you know, Fangoria, Cinefantastique, Femme Fatales, Comic Scene. Uh, what were some of the other ones that were around back then? Uh, you had Wizard Magazine. You had... Um, uh, oh, there, there, there were probably a good dozen of them that were around at the time. And then, of course, you have, um, well, not, not Battlefield Earth, the, not the, Battlefield Earth was not the, um, not the one that John Travolta was in, that, that thing. That's the, that's a completely different one. Uh, this was, this, I think it was called Battlefield Earth. It eventually became Earth Final Conflict, where you had the alien invasion it was a t- it was a syndicated TV show, <clears throat> but then the other thing is this whole this there's one of these frequencies where Roddenberry's uh, Roddenberry's career took off after Star Trek, and what Dan's done is he's gone back and he's looked at the other things the other projects that Roddenberry was pushing at the time was trying to was trying to do uh, at the networks, Quester tapes. Genesis 2. And projecting from there. I'll say that. Uh, <clears throat> it was um, it was a different battlefield earth. But you also have uh, some stuff in there with Glenn Larson, some stuff with George Lucas after the failure of Star Wars. Um yeah, those are yeah, just just to be clear, the Roddenberry's Battlefield Earth was not the same thing. It was a completely different thing from the from the uh uh Oh, who did that one? Um L. Ron Hubbard. It was not it was not the Hubbard Battlefield Earth. <clears throat> but also not just not just Glenn Larson and and George Lucas, but Meryl Streep. Did you guys know that Meryl Streep was was brought in to audition for King Kong? I did not know that. Dan tells that story. Apparently, it did not go well. But it gets it it, it gets you thinking. It's like, oh well, what if, what if that had gone that way instead of that way. You know, what if Charlton Comics had survived and succeeded where Marvel Comics had not? Because you remember, Marvel Comics was on the ropes. Earth Final Conflict, yes. Marvel Comics in the, in, in, in the 80s, in the 90s, was not doing too well. What if they had gone bankrupt? What if they had had to do a fire sale bigger than they actually did in this universe. 
what if George Lucas <coughs> was making a bunch of direct-to-video horror films instead of Star Wars? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can. What if Jim Shooter hadn't fired? You know, some people ask that question still. Uh, Michael, yes, Andromeda. Andromeda was the third version. You had Planet Earth starring John Saxon. Then you had uh, Genesis 2 starring Alex Cord. And then you had Andromeda. And each of those, you know, with Kevin Sorbo, <clears throat> each of those featured a character named Dylan Hunt waking up in the future. And Andromeda was the only one that got picked up. Now, Dan uses Genesis 2 in the book because out of the two, Planet Earth, Genesis 2, Genesis 2 had the better ratings. It almost got picked up by the network. Almost. And Dan's, Dan's story basically is, well, what if it had? What if Genesis 2 had set Gene Roddenberry up with a string of hits, including Quester Tapes and Earth, you know, Earth Final Conflict, Battlefield Earth, whatever it was called, and, and further. And this little Star Trek thing back here was just a footnote. What if? It's a fun book. I, I recommend it. There's some stuff in there about, uh, like I said, there's some stuff in there from Glenn Larson. Uh, there's some George Lucas stuff. There's some um, DC and Charlton and Marvel, and it's 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 worth it's worth the time and the energy to to read. Uh, it is, but I man, I'm really excited about this amalgam stuff coming back. This is going to be fun because. It also sets the table for more. If it sells well, give them what they want, right? One man just says, I very much enjoy Starlog. Future lost my collection to a house fire. He took all my Warren magazines. Ouch, ouch, ouch. See, and that's actually what happened to all of the back issues that Starlog had. Starlog had a warehouse where they had they had collected back issues and stuff that hadn't sold and you had this big collection of Starlog magazines that were just that were just sitting in storage and the warehouse caught fire so all of that overflow is gone so any Starlogs that you find out there and I've got a few back here on mine but you know you go to eBay or wherever else you find Starlogs that's it Anything that's out in the wild is all there is. <clears throat> now, the other thing I will note that the, uh, the current ownership of Fangoria, Tara Ansley, has hinted in the Starlog fan group over on Facebook that there is some kind of an announcement coming with regard to Starlog. I don't know what that is. I have sent her an email. I have asked her what she's talking about. I haven't gotten anything back. Now, this was this was maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago. So nothing's come of it since. And my guess is a, an official digital archive of the magazine. 
because you could go and find it over on Internet Archive or, or wherever else, but it's not an officially licensed... Somebody just scanned the books and put them in there. It's a, it's, it's a clear copyright violation. They didn't have permission to do it. Because uh, I was asking Dave McDonald about it when I interviewed him back... Oh, this was, what, now four years ago, five years ago? And he said, whoever did it didn't have permission to do it. Because otherwise, everybody who had contributed to the book would be getting paid for it to be there on that site. <clears throat> but uh, it didn't work out that way. Somebody somebody has scanned all of the magazines and put it up there at the at the Internet Archive, uh, archive.org, wherever it is, without permission, and it's, and it's copyright violation. But Tara, Tara has teased at something coming for Starlog, related to Starlog. My guess it's going to be an official digital archive that you can access online somewhere that you can see. Here's all of the here's all of the stuff. <clears throat> one minute show says Spectre should have been picked up. That's another one that's in this book. That's another one that gets mentioned, Spectre. Um there's uh there's some stuff from Australia. There's some John Carter stuff. And that's a fun one. There's some John Carter stuff in there. There's Gulliver on Mars stuff. So yeah, it's it's a fun book. It's it's a it's a lot of winks and nods. And the the thing about it is, it's not just for the people who have this esoteric knowledge of fandom. Because that would that would limit the audience. It's written in a way that you it's still accessible for people who have no idea any of this stuff was ever even a what if. It still works. <coughs> uh, one man show says I don't know if Quester tapes would have held up as a series. Well, the thing is, what happened with Quester? Is the they they had the thing they had the movie with uh, Robert Foxworth and Mike Farrell, and Robert Foxworth is playing Qu Quester. Mike Farrell is the human scientist who's uh, who's helping him as you know be befriends him and whatnot. And Quester is an early prototype of Lieutenant Commander Data from Next Generation. Okay, so there there's your framework. But when the pilot aired. You know the mo the movie aired, and the network was looking at it, and they're like, "Yeah, hey, we you know we we, we kind of like this, but we want to change all of it, like the network suits do. They wanted to get rid of Mike Farrell and make it a little bit more action oriented. And Ron Burgundy's like, "No, the relationship, the friendship is the core of the story. It's Quest Quester is trying to figure out who he is. He's trying to under uncover all of the things that." he can't remember and his friendship with Mike Farrell's character is integral to all you got to have that you got to have that dynamic and then so the network said yeah thanks but no thanks and so the show died before it ever got on the air I think if it was done right you probably could have had three or four seasons of Quester tapes but the network didn't get it. And that's frequently 
the problem when it comes to networks looking at any of Gene Roddenberry stuff. The other problem with it, of course, is the battles that Roddenberry had with the networks. Because Roddenberry didn't want to change things that the networks wanted to change. And he was <clears throat> very difficult to work with by some accounts. And if you read uh, over there in my, in my pile back over there, I have Mark Cushman's books, These Are the Voyages. And he's talking about some of that stuff in, in one of those. The, the, the wilderness years, basically, between Star Trek and Star Trek The Motion Picture. All of this other stuff that Roddenberry was working on. And the and the 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 back and forth between Roddenberry and the networks and the stuff that the networks wanted and the stuff that Roddenberry wanted to do, and Roddenberry just dug his heels in and did not want to to change. I I know better than you, and I'm just going to show you. And and the networks passed on his projects. What man shows says, check YouTube for laughs. It's still buffering on my PC. I don't understand why it's doing that. All right, so so one man show, Michael are both telling me that they're experiencing some buffering. I'm not seeing it any. Up, oh, I just saw a little a little flash of it. A little flash of it. See, this is this is why we need, this is why we have Odyssey and Rumble, right? I I don't know what's causing it. I have set my I've set my buffer uh, my my bit rate and everything else where it's supposed to be the recommended amounts and whatnot. I don't have that many tabs open on my uh, on my computer, so I I don't know. I don't know why it's I don't know why it's doing that. <sighs> anyway, so we had some trailers. We had some trailers drop yesterday. I. I'm not I'm not gonna go through too much of it, but you've got um Deadpool and and Wolverine. I do want to show you this one thing I thought was rather cute, uh cutesy. Back here on this trailer, if you look here in the Wolverine in, in the uh, in the Deadpool uh trailer, behind Deadpool here, there is the twentieth century Fox logo buried in the dirt. 20th Century Fox logo buried in the dirt. And it does look like we're getting the TVA in this. They're going to uh, recruit him to be some whatever. He says, you mean I'm Marvel Jesus. And there's Wolverine dressed as Patch. This may be in uh, Majapur or wherever. This is this is Wolverine dressed as Patch. <coughs> And the the speculation hey, we got Pyro coming back. This is Pyro from the um, from the X Men movies from from way back in the day. Uh, and then you have, uh, as pointed out here, in uh, stop that in the corner back over here on this side with. Why are you doing this? Stop doing this, run. So behind this window there, you see a copy of Secret Wars. This is the one that's got Doctor Doom on the cover. Uh, you, you probably can't see it because of this thing covered up. But let me stop that. Let me turn. Let me turn this off. 
Um, uh, options. Oh, stop it. Anyway. So, back here you've got the... Um, Secret Wars cover, and then of course you've got Wolverine showing up in the yellow costume. Right there. So, so Deadpool and Wolverine, there's the thing, we got the TVA coming in, and the speculation is for a lot of people that because Rob Liefeld has said this will save the MCU. I don't know. I don't know if it will or not. People remain hopeful. And that's all well and good. And if it does save the MCU, okay, great. But uh, we will see what we can see it the the problem the problem with the problem with using the tva because it ties back to loki this is a golden opportunity oh one man show says the buffering might be a youtube issue it occurs on multiple channels if all okay good to know so youtube is has got the stone martin weasels this week that's that's good to know <clears throat> so what deadpool 3 needs to do it needs to call out the homework. Just just give it to me in 30 seconds. I don't I don't want to go back and I don't want to watch all this stuff. Just tell me. And give me 30 seconds, 45 seconds, explain to me what the TVA is, explain to me the multiverse. Okay, there's multiple times. I got it. Go. Let's go. Get jump into the adventure. There needs to be an acknowledgement. And make it a gag. Make it a joke. There needs to be some kind of an acknowledgement that there's too much of Phase 4 and Phase 5 that depend on you having to do homework. And Deadpool needs to call that out. Gojira says, I don't want to subscribe to a streaming service and watch two seasons of a show to enjoy a 90-minute movie. Exactly. And there are a lot of people like that. I'm like, wait, I've got to watch this, and I've got to watch this, and I've got to watch that, and I've got to read this, and I've got to do that. Why? Just just do the... That's the, that's the problem with an interconnected universe, right? Where you've got this shared universe where all of these stories are supposed to be taking place all together... They need to be able to stand alone by themselves. Deadpool 3 could, I said this last night on Culture's Channel, there is an opportunity here for Marvel to hit a reset button. I don't know that they're actually going to successfully hit the reset button, but we'll see. <clears throat> I don't know. All right, we're going to take a real quick break. When we get back, author Jason Tolbert will be my guest. It is a pre-recorded interview. I will still be here, though, uh, to to monitor things, but we'll talk talk to him about his new book, 
uh, which is out tomorrow. Arsalon the Magnificent. It is about a wizard who has something go badly, and he has to basically rebuild his uh, rebuild his entire life after things go horribly, horribly wrong. So there is that. That's coming up right after this. Don't go anywhere. Live from the bunker, we'll be right back on Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Hi, everyone. Jason Hunt here, taking a moment to say thank you for listening to this program on the podcast player of your choice and to invite you to watch the show as it unfolds live on our various video platforms. Not only will you get to see the visual references we have, but you also have a chance to interact with us through the chat widget and during the open line hour when you can call in and be part of the show. Join us live from the bunker Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Back live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here along with all of you who are watching. And my guest this hour author Jason Tolbert he has a new book that's coming out on the 13th from Curlicue Press it is called Arsalon the Magnificent and we're going to be talking about that plus some other stuff crafty writing things Jason welcome to the program sir glad to have you thank you thank you very much glad to be here so let's uh, let's give people the readers digest version of this book it's uh is it the beginning of a series is this just a one and done or where where does this fall in all of your work potentially it's the beginning of a series i didn't have uh, the idea of a series when i started it i just had the idea of writing a fantasy novel i'd written two other books before that were more literary fiction or surrealist or surrealism or fantastical fiction um and after I wrote that, I wrote them for fun mostly. But after I wrote those, my wife gave me a challenge. She said, why don't you write something that's sort of commercially or at least readily appealing to an audience? Um, see if you, what would happen. So I said, well, my favorite, uh, that means genre fiction. And my favorite genre or the, the one that's most familiar to me is fantasy uh, literature from, from and, and it goes back to my days of reading Tolkien to when I, when I was maybe 10 or 11 or 12 years old falling in love with the Lord of the Rings. So I saw, thought, I, I suppose I could write a fantasy novel, but um, uh, instead of writing the typical fantasy novel of maybe a Teutonic hero or a knight venturing across the land and defeating monsters and riding dragons, I would sort of invert those stereotypes, a little, or I shouldn't say stereotypes, invert those tropes a little bit and write something that is kind of the inverse of that, only have it be as appealing as any other sort of fancy novel. So I wrote it with this, it was intended as a one and done, but um, it seems to have taken a life of its own, at least in my mind. And the people who've read it seem to be very enthusiastic about it. So I've been planning sort of this, this just, just the seedlings of the ideas of a sequel to it. So what is this story about? Who is Arsalan the Magnificent? Arsalan the Magnificent is a wizard basically, who lives in the late 18th century, the early 19th century, 
Ottoman Empire. He is a middle-aged guy who has found success as a wizard who uh, constructs fantastical structures, structures that wouldn't otherwise be possible using ordinary engineering and physics. And he is a member of a guild of these very elite wizards who have the power to do these things. There may be just a dozen of them on the planet who have the power to do these things. And they've all found wealth and success building um, fantastical structures for royalty and, and the like. So there are stadiums and, and um, that sort of maybe rotate on their bases. Maybe there are, you know, a, a, a tower that goes sideways and back up again and it goes all sorts of crazy directions. And they do all these fantastical things. And um, Arsalan, at the time of this, at this story's beginning, is the greatest one of them all. Um, and on the, uh, on the day of the unveiling of his greatest sculpture, not sculpture, but building of all time, it uh, falls to pieces. Hmm. And he's completely devastated because it happened in front of the Sultan of um, the Ottoman Empire at the time and a lot of foreign dignitaries. And his career basically falls apart. So he has to, he investigates the cause of the collapse, can't find a reason, but then after a while, it doesn't really matter because his family falls apart and he just uh, loses all of his money and has to go into exile. And the rest of the book is him dealing with that at the same time as rebuilding his reputation and coming to terms with maybe some of the mistakes he had made leading up to that, that uh, collapse in the first place. Now, so it's a very, yeah, oh, it's no, a very, in, it has uh, external plot elements. It had, there's some exciting, uh, you know, there's a, there's some exciting action in it as well, but it's also kind of a deeply internal um, psychological exploration of a character. Well, the fact that your lead, you say he's middle-aged, uh, how, how, much, how much of that, uh, when you're talking about the psychological aspects of it, that's, a, that's a, a, a very different thing for somebody in you know, late 40s, early 50s than somebody coming through in their 20s or 30s, which is what you typically find with your protagonists in high fantasy type of things. Mm -hmm. uh, was that was there a deliberate choice there on, on your part? I I definitely have to make this guy middle aged for the story to work, or did, did it just happen that way? It just it just worked out. Oh, he's he's got a career, he's got a track record. Let's see where we go from here. If he's at the top of his game, and now suddenly everything kind of falls out from under him. Yeah, sort of all those things at once. Um, it was an attempt at an inversion of the typical trope of a, of a fantasy hero who is typically young and coming of age and trying to go through the hero's journey of gaining treasure or wisdom and seeking a mentor. Um, I wanted to explore what a story would be like if a person had already gone through the hero's journey, gotten to the top of their career, and then faced new crises. What would those be like? Um, it was partially inspired by a video I saw one time of a, of a, he was an older man. I think he was Turkish sitting on top of a mountain playing a stringed instrument with his cats surrounding him. And he was playing in a way that was very peaceful and the mountains were behind him. And I thought to myself, it, it, the music was very good, but I thought to myself, this guy has got to have a story behind him. Yeah. What if I wrote a story about how he got there? Maybe he's in exile. Maybe something happened to him that he's escaping from. And that sort of came together. And I thought I could use this character as sort of the character in my book. 
And um, so it's that is an inspiration just and also the thought of sort of uh, varying the age of the of the uh, of the protagonist a little bit so that I wanted to write a write a story that sort of touched on issues of middle age or adulthood in a way that a young adult or an emerging adult would actually could actually uh, identify with because um, you know a lot of I think it's pretty strictly defined. Um, young adult fiction is fiction about young adults as the protagonist. And I didn't actually know that as I was writing the book. Um, but um, I thought, what if, you know, is it true that all 18 to 22 year olds are only interested in stories about 18 to 22 year olds? What if I'm 18 to 22 years of age and I'm actually curious about what it means to be 55 years old yeah. or 65 years old facing a crisis in, in my adulthood, what would that be like? What, what would the mythology be like? What would the narrative be like? You know, I, th I think genre fiction might be a little bit too strictly defined as, well, the, the genres that we know of being young adult or adult or child, you know, children's books, um, maybe a little bit too strictly defined as uh, defining the, the, the age range of the protagonists themselves. Maybe it could be that we write a book that a, ch a child or a young adult at any age could identify with, regardless of the age of the protagonist. Now you talk about the world, the mythology, and the world building. Did did this land in the Ottoman Empire because that video you saw as inspiration was in Turkey, or, or was that how how did you decide to go backwards and do a historical fantasy rather than? say a fantasy on on some other planet like dragon riders of pern for example or or some other mythological realm yeah i wanted to add an, an air of reality to it that we would identify with um well there are a couple of things that come together um a lot of our fantasy is derived from tolkien and c.s lewis which is sort of derived from sort of northern european myths mm -hmm. it, and these are perfectly valid and really interesting things but i wanted also maybe to invert that trope and say, what if, what if we wrote a similar type of fantasy novel about people who were sort of not in Northern Europe, but in the Middle East somewhere or in Turkey or in the Mediterranean or North Africa or something like that. Not that I'm an expert in those, in, in the cultures of that area, but I thought it would be an interesting um, deviation. And um, the fact that the video did feature a guy who was, looked like he was from Turkey, did set me off in that direction too, sort of. Um, but, um, the reason I made it in this world, so to speak, is actually sort of like, I guess you would say it's an alternate or alternative past of, of the earth where magic exists is to add to it an air of, I wouldn't say mundanity, but a little bit of, of, of a more of a grounded, uh, take on a fantasy novel. Sure. I, I realized I could take, I could create an entirely new world, but, um, I thought of historical fantasy, they're not quite, they're not written quite as, as often as sort of a completely original fantasy sort of world is, you know, something like that, uh, a George R.R. R. Martin novel, you know, that's a completely different planet, right? right. Um, uh, historical fantasy isn't written as, as much or as often. So I th try, thought I'd try my hand at that. Well, and, and you have uh, people like Harry Turtledove, for example, who is uh, well-known for his alternate universe, you know, alternate history type of, of fiction. 
And it sounds like you're kind of leaning into that as well. How much of the historical aspect is here based on how much research you had to do? What kind of research did you have to do in order? Because it's easy to project forward into the future two, three, four hundred years. Yeah, I can make Mm -hmm. up anything that I want. Ten years from now in the future, maybe not so easy. But you go backwards in time, you go to historical eras, and now you have the additional onus of being at least mostly historically accurate if you're going to be dealing with a time period that actually existed and a, and a culture that was, that was real. How, how, how much research do you have to do in order to make sure you don't get dinged by that one guy who says, well, actually, the Ottoman Empire was... Yeah. Do, do you, what, what, would, what went into that? Um, as I was writing the story, I did do research online to at least give it space to, to exist. For instance, um, well, I had to make sure that the political relationships between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of the world, which actually occur in the story, uh, are plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there are things about culture, even the mail system in, in the, during the Ottoman Empire, um, um, the, relation, the diplomatic relationships between the Ottoman Empire and the rest of Europe, or not the rest of Europe, but Europe at the time, um, uh, at least had some air of plausibility. I didn't go so far into it that I didn't constrain myself from being able to write a story. Right. It has a bit, bit of a fairy tale air about it because I was writing for young adults or teens or something like that. So I wanted to take some liberties because I am, I was writing uh, an alternate history uh, story and at the same time trying to write a story that was a bit more, I would say it kind of has a fairy tale air to it. So I didn't go, I wasn't so strict that I wanted to make it grimly real. You know, it was sort of a balance. So there are certain things about the story that I wrote that um, they're actually historically accurate. For instance, there was a mail system that was in, in a, that was in use during the Ottoman Empire around that time that was actually administered by the Austrians, the Austrian Hung, Austria-Hungarian Empire, because um, when foreign dignitaries and business people went into the Ottoman Empire, um, they found that the Austrians actually did a better job at delivering mail. So that's kind of a feature in the book. And um, the, um, the there is... Uh, I think Arslan travels into the Balkan mountains, which is, which was on the very edge of the Ottoman empire. It was included in it. Although in the book, it seems relatively peaceful and the people have a lot of goodwill. Um, but actually in truth, it, in historically, there was a lot of violence in those, those areas. And they, there were, there were uprisings in, in, in what is presently Bulgaria where people were hanged for, you know, treason and things like that it was pretty violent you won't see that type of thing you know i wanted to stray away from the sort of grim you know bloody historical violence that you would typically see in european and ottoman history which is it could be pretty bloody but then i wanted to make it uh give it a a bit of room to have a bit of a i keep saying fairy tale air to it because it is there's some things that are not that wouldn't probably wouldn't happen in real life Mm -hmm. you know the way people act um but uh, so I wanted to find a balance between reality and grimness, if you, if that makes sense. I wanted something that wouldn't be that would turn uh, young adults off with with too much blood. 
What was the reasoning behind making it young adult, making it a YA book as opposed to just a regular uh, general audience uh, genre piece? I don't know. I think it's because the reason um, that when I read fantasy, I was chiefly, a, well, I was actually a teenager. I was before a teenager, but I was a fan of fantasy literature throughout maybe when I was 10 to throughout my teens. So that's what I kind of associate with fantasy, the fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I associate, I associate it with myself being a young adult. Um, I understand that there are, of course, there's George R. R. Martin, when he makes his grimly adult, you know, very, <laughs> very much like, yeah. like the Roman empire. Um, um, so I think I wanted it to have some sort of appeal that was kind of positive and endearing in a way. But then actually the, the, the um, promotional specialist I've been dealing with that, you know, if you actually make this a young adult novel, you actually constrain the audience to a certain number of sales. So you right. might as well just make it general fantasy. So I did. So now it, it seems like more like a general fantasy novel that has, that is a bit more childlike, you know, or a bit more young adult like. Um, but I think my original intent was simply to make it a bit endearing. It was, Less about, less about like being 100% historically accurate and more about an internal struggle with one person. All right. Yeah. Is, is the, the fact that this is young adult, did that, uh, did that impact at, at least your intent? Did that impact how you told the story in certain ways? Like there's, a, there's I've got this scene, but I, now I need to dial it back because of the intended audience. Did, did you ever find yourself doing that and, and kind of doing some self-restraint? Yeah, there's a big battle scene at the end where, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but, well, actually, there's one aspect I, I impressed, and that is that the um, the architects, actually, they're, they're called magical architects, these wizards, that's their title. In order to become a magical architect, they, they take a vow um, of nonviolence. They can't hurt anyone or anything. And the reason for that is um, there's the fear of their powers being used for military conquests. And um, it's, it just turns out that these wizards or magical architects are very wise from the beginning. And they know that if they if their powers get into the hands of people, people who want to conquer the world, then it's a bit like nuclear war. So that's a constraint I've put upon them. Um, and, um, so that leads up to a final battle sequence where, um, Arslan leads a bunch of people to defend themselves from a large army. And he says, look, uh, we've taken our vows, but there are ways we can defeat the enemy that are cleverer than killing. So let's use these non-lethal means to do so. Mm. So that's the way I dialed it back because I didn't, I wanted a sort of a exciting battle sequence but I didn't want to scare kids off from too much, uh, uh, you know, terrible violence. Yeah. We, we all know that war is terrible and it's horrible and it's insane. And we can easily depict that in uh, fantasy novels. And it is often depicted in the fantasy novels, even Tolkien. But Tolkien doesn't get into the blood. He just gets into people being slain and falling and things like that. Right. Um, I didn't want to go that far even. I wanted it to... Um, I didn't want it to be too entirely scary, but at the same time, I also wanted to, to impress upon the reader the idea that maybe 
there are ways you can resolve conflict, even violent conflict, in a way that uses intelligence over brute force. Sure. You know, I just read a, a, a interesting, where well, at least I tried to read, and it, it was just a headline today, where I think Fairfax County policemen uh, they subdued a, a criminal using a Spider-Man-like lasso. <laughs> and I clicked on it, and I couldn't see it because I didn't subscribe to Washington Post. Right. But that was a bit like what I was trying to, uh, the, sort of, uh, the sort of ideology I was kind of going after. Yeah. Now, you, you grow up reading Tolkien, and, and you know, you've got C.S. Lewis out there, and you've got all of this, all of this uh, fantasy that has become basically the template for all of high fantasy, everything always goes back to Tolkien and Lewis. Mm-hmm. When you're writing this, you've got a you've got a fixed idea of what kind of story you want to tell, who your characters are. Uh, are you using? Are you going with archetypes? Are are we going to see characters that maybe we've seen other places, or did you try to avoid? I mean comparisons to Tolkien probably inevitable depending you know because anybody who writes fantasy there's going to be that uh wh- what are what have you done what are you doing in this book to to make sure that it stands on its own by itself as its own thing um i used some tropes and some archetypes very judiciously for instance arslan being older is a bit like gandalf except he's a very uh, impatient, sort of cantankerous and irascible Gandalf. Um, <laughs> that's Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, that's Gandalf still. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I based a lot of the, arch- the the behaviors of the magical architects on the wizards, the Istari, you know, Saruman and Radagast and and, Sar- and uh, Gandalf. Yeah. And maybe the other two that we've never seen, you know, the blue ones. Um, they had flaws, you know, they failed in their ways. So I kind of based it on that. Um, that's inevitable, I suppose. But um, I didn't have any warrior types in there, except maybe for one. Um, there are no sword-wielding warriors going around having battles, which is, I think battles are fine in fantasy books. I think it's sure. great. Yeah, um, nothing wrong with it. Um, but I wanted something uh, besides that. So there's none of those, although there is fighting, you know, there's none of those. Um, but there is a warrior and it's Arsalan's son. He actually goes off in the beginning of the novel to be um, to go from being just a rich sort of a playboy to being a, 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 an officer in the in the, the Ottoman navy. And he learns a thing or two about fighting wars. And he actually aids Arsalan in in the final battle in a way that it's more tactical and more um, it's more tactical. He doesn't actually he actually aids all the generals who were engaged in the fighting on what to do. And so it, in a way, so I do have warriors. It's just that uh, there's less sort of brute violence involved in it. Yeah. Um, and there are some other things like I have a cat, you know, everybody loves cats. There's a cat in the story. Um, I wanted to have a cat to, to, to sort of endear the audience. Not it's in a cynical way because I love cats. You know, they're great. No. Um, you know, and, um, but um I didn't have too many of the typical, you know, people with swords, you know. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, I sort of asked myself, what did Tolkien do right? And what did Tolkien do a lot of that people imitate that I don't have to do anymore? You know, that's sort of what I asked. 
myself. Yeah, I guess I guess it's yeah. a good way of looking at it. Yeah, now, when you're you're making these these wizards uh, as characters in your book, a, a lot of times uh, with fantasy especially, but with science fiction in general and and just in genre, uh, you you have this uh, need for the story's internal logic to work. Because otherwise the story falls apart and then inconsistencies start to show up and, well, wait a minute, you did this over here, but it contradicts this over here. When you're planning the magic, are, are, do you have a, a set, fixed set of rules that you've got to use? Yes, I do, actually. And, and anyone who writes a book about magical fantasy has to have these rules. That's pretty much the rule is that you have to have rules. Otherwise it's all a deus ex machina. Yeah. You know, you can do anything. And then the stakes are gone. Um, I put particularly heavy straight uh, uh, constraints on the magic um, in that I wanted it to be a sort of a workaday, mundane, everyday type of force that you see like electricity or magnetism that runs by uh, predictable rules and physical laws um, that engineers can sort of uh, plan things by. And um, and also, it's it's a power that only a certain select few have the de developed the ability to use. Um, maybe genetically or whatever factors come together. Maybe, uh, but when a person is born, maybe when they're a young young adult or something, the powers emerge and then they're recruited into the guild. So it's but, it's midi chlorians then. It basically <laughs> midi chlorians. It's the force. Certain people have the force. Most people don't. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess that's, I borrow that directly from Star Wars. But um, so this force that they use, this magic is basically a type of, basically a mundane type of um, telekinesis. They can lift things, very, very heavy things. Not only that, but they can imbue uh, physical objects with certain traits that last over a period of time. Maybe they glow, maybe they issue sound or light. Maybe they shift around and move around at a certain command using conditional logic. It's very mechanical. Um, and um, because I didn't want the magic in the story to be so alien or so strange that it would um, sort of challenge sort of the everyday feel of the book. Right. Do you know what I mean? If you make, there is, there is magic that is a bit more of a weirder and more sinister uh, trait of a more sinister character that happens on the fringes of the novel but the wizards in this novel are actually kind of afraid to use it because they're ah. afraid they're afraid of what might happen they're a little bit cagey about it um so i put a lot of constraints on the magic because i wanted to get get across that the, the magic's there it's sort of in the background it comes into the foreground a little bit but it's generally like anything else you might build like an aqueduct with water running through it or maybe in, the, in their future electricity. And um, so, and I wanted to put the focus mostly on the characters. Uh, is there, um, is there ever a time when you're looking at this stuff, you're, cause you're, you're middle-aged protagonist magic. Um, there's not a whole lot of, science quote-unquote uh, but you you do have in the past alchemists for example who were considered you know you've got 
wizards who are trying to, you know, actually do some chemistry and physics and try to turn lead into gold, for example. Uh, do you have uh, that kind of foundation for the magic? I mean, I know only certain people have access to it and how it works, but is it is it more physical manifestations or is it is it more elemental i mean is it what's what's the connection to the world that the magic has i don't know if I i'm asking that right but i know what you're asking like where does it come from what's the actual nature of it yeah and i, I didn't actually go into it very much in the book i didn't want to explain it too much maybe in subsequent novels i can actually explain more of it in the same way that the star that's the star wars series tried to explain midichlorians and things like that but uh um, to get into a granular level require would require a little bit more thought. I just kind of characterize it as a generalized telekinesis and maybe a little bit more than that. Um, as, as far as its relation to alchemy, it could be that the wizards themselves were the inspiration for Legends of Alchemy because they could change substances from one to the other and so on. Yeah. Um, um, but I didn't go into that because I... I probably, I probably didn't think of it and I probably didn't want to consider it as uh, the nature of magic as, as, as important as the characters themselves. Well, the other, um, the other aspect of that too, is once you set a rule in place, right. uh, you know, for your story, then you're kind of stuck with it unless you can come up with some way of twisting that rule around and, and breaking it in your own book. And, exactly. and that's a challenge too. Yeah. So if I set too many rules in the beginning, then I have to be very cagey about, okay, well, they can do this, but not this. And then they can do this other thing, but they, I'll be violating this rule. Right. So if I had too many rules down, I won't, I, I was, I guess I was afraid I would break too many of my own rules while writing the book. So if you're planning this to be more than one book, uh, I'm, or I'm assuming that you've got uh, your world building notebook set aside for referencing. Okay. Well, what did I do? Oh, wait a minute. I did this back in chapter two of the first book, and I did this in chapter five of the second book, so I can't do this in the third book. Are you? I, I imagine you're keeping track, yeah? Yeah, I'm keeping track, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't, I hate to say this all up here, but I do have notes. Sure. You know, yeah. As I write the book, I write notes. Basically, I write the book through my through the notes app on my phone. And it's, I go throughout my day thinking of ideas to add to the story, mm. and I write this running long running list on my notes app. And at, at the end of the day, it would be more like a series of uh, a process of transcription, you know? And um, so there's a notes for the actual thing that I would write and the notes for the rules of the world that I'm, that I'm building. Gotcha. Now, are you an outliner? Are you a, a planner or are you a pantser? I am an outliner. I line, I outline things about maybe four or five chapters ahead of where I am in the story. Okay. So I have, I try to strike a balance between uh, complete control and a little bit of spont spontaneity. Um, if I found that when I try to plan things out, like the entire book from beginning to, to, to the middle to the end, too strictly, in either case, anyway, I end up re sort of revamping things from the beginning anyway, because mm -hmm. I think of ideas, you know, I think of other things I could throw in there that violate what I wrote before. And I said, okay, okay, so let me just re redo that. So I take this balanced approach for about maybe about five or six chapters ahead of where I am. I, I, I outline it. And then of course, I got to go back and make sure I did everything consistently. 
Yeah. Now, I imagine this process has evolved over time as, uh, you know, the different number of books that you've written. What got you into writing in the first place? The thing that got me into writing in the first place, I, I came to writing novels rather late in my life. Um, but before that, I wrote a lot of poetry in like high school and college. And I was always very kind of rather good at writing. I say good as, as in comparison to the people around me. Uh, teachers always remarked on my writing ability, but I never took the idea of being a writer very seriously at all because I knew this is back. I'm dating myself. This is back in the eighties that writers didn't make a lot of money, uh, even less so then than they do now. Um, so I never entertained the idea of writing a book because I didn't think I had any good ideas. Um, um, but then something happened um, around the age 30 or 40 in my thirties, I would go to library book sales and, you know, they would, where they would sell books for like 25 cents a piece. Mm -hmm. And the, the place I would go to were straight to the, towards the classics. So I bought a whole bunch of Franz Kafka's and I brought a, bought a whole bunch of Herman Hesse novels and, you know, without any thought as to which one was good or bad or anything like that. And the book that really turned the light bulb on was Franz Kafka's The Trial. Mm. I'd never really read an entire Franz Kafka novel or story before that. And I, and it was kind of amazing. And I thought, I didn't know people could write like this. You know, you just sort of make a world and bend it around to your will without really thinking too much, too hard about how real it should be. You yeah. know, his, his books are, of course, all about psychology and the human condition. You know, yeah. nothing about the real world. It's, a, it's about a nightmare dream world existing in your head, essentially. Um, and I thought the, the freedom that gave it, I didn't know authors could have such freedom to describe the real world in such a, a weird way. And then from then, I went on to another author named Bruno Schultz, who is not very well known within literary circles, but or at least in genre fiction circles. But he's a writer of the same ilk as Franz Kafka, and he wrote in this incredibly phantasmagoric, dreamlike way about his just his hometown of Drohobych in Ukraine at the time. Actually, he was Polish. He was Poland at the time, and um, his works are amazing, and they're just description of uh, his hometown, but in a way that makes it seem so not nightmarish, but dreamlike. And, um, it's at once surreal and also realist. And, um, that when I read that, it's like another light bulb went on in my head. I was like, I got to write something like this. So that kind of inspired the first novel that I wrote, which is like a sort of like that. It was a deeply surrealist, um, description of the real world. Um, that, and that sort of went from there. And then, um, when I decided to get into genre fiction to try my hand at it, at least, um, I didn't want to go too strange, but I, I thought maybe there's a way I could write a piece of genre fiction in a way, uh, that's visually descriptive and emotive and deeply psychological where it typically isn't. Um, so Arsaline the Magnificent is no, nowhere nearly as weird as Kafka or, or Bruno Schultz. Uh, don't be afraid about that, but, uh, it's, uh, the, um, but there is, I did take the liberty of using some visually descriptive language, um, to sort of set the tone of the novel, um, to set the, 
to, to cue the psychological, to, to give some cues as to the psychological state of the character or characters. Yeah. And to make it a bit distinctive because a lot of the times, you know, in genre um, writing, people will resort to what's happening next, what's going on, what the character does, goes here, goes there, describes the things kind of objectively, sort of straightforwardly. And I thought if you give it just a little bit more personality, a little bit more embellishment in the, in, in the vocabulary, um, it would make for a very interesting genre piece. Well, and poetry is a very good exercise for that. If for nothing else, then just to flex your, your creative muscles on word choice. Because, you know, it, it's not mainstream these days for, you know, people to be reading Dickinson and, 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 and the like. But that, that craft, that skill set is a very distinct, unique thing in that you have, you know, the economy of scale where it comes in to say, I, I have a certain thing that I need to say, but I can only say it in five words. Or I can only say it in two stanzas, or you know, how, however your your poetry is structured. You not only have to convey uh, a visual or or an emotional aspect of that, but do it in a way that is, you know, brief. I mean, unless you're doing these really long tone poems that are stream of consciousness and and they have no structure to them. But you know, for the most part, when people think about poetry, they're a very structured distinct thing and i i i haven't really done very much myself writing poetry but i can i can see where okay i have to say this if i use this word here then i can use that word there and it does let you flex your creative muscles a little bit more than just straight prose yeah you hit on an interesting point because depending on the the the, uh the the structure or the style of poetry that you're writing it could be an epic poem, which is more like literary fiction. But if you're limiting yourself to stanzas and rhymes and meters, or if you're doing a haiku or something very small and structured, mm -hmm. it's very much akin to genre fiction writing. Because genre fiction is, I should, it's bad, it's probably sounds, you know, a pejorative to say that it's, you know, formulaic, but it does adhere to a standard template that you want to adhere by. Um, and the sort of the discipline, the artistic discipline that that's risen to, that, that comes about when you're trying to, to write something according to a structure is the same whether you're writing a haiku or a good detective novel or yeah. a good fantasy novel that has to have a certain structure, beginning, middle, and end. So it's directly applicable. So poetry isn't so far out when you think about it uh, compared to, to literature. It is, of course, the origin of literature, but there are elements of that that are directly apl applicable to any type of structured or formulaic writing. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, you could also, there's an economy of words when you're using just the right turn of phrase or just the right vocabulary. Here's an example. Like you could say, if, if there's a character walking in the mountains or in the, in the desert and there's a crescent moon above him or her and it's gold and it's thin and it's beautiful and it's shining and it's, you know, high in the sky, you could use all those words to describe the moon as it looks right. on that night. Yep. Or you could say it looks like a fine shaving of gold. And that one metaphor will tell you everything you need to know about what the, what the moon looks like that night. You don't right. have to go through it's like yellow and shiny. And some, just um, poetic metaphor is compact. It comes with all these associations 
and um, all these associations and, and feelings and sentiments that just kind of come together in one package, just like encapsulated. So poet, poetic language can actually save you time. It can actually save you space and, and effort in writing even a uh, piece of genre fiction. Now, as you're going through this uh, and writing Arsalan, was there a point in time where you were looking at it with, you know, poetry in your background, the word choice and, and, and creative such, and it, I'm hearing you kind of distinguish between genre fiction, literary fiction, and there are a number of authors who are in both worlds who approach genre fiction like literary, you know, people say it's all literary in, in how it's crafted, how it's written, you know, whatever your word style and, and word choice is. But there, there seems to be among, among the genre people a group that thinks that literary science fiction is a little bit more highbrow and a little bit more important than regular genre fiction. And then, of course, out in the general public, there's, there seems to be more of a distinction between literary works and science fiction because, you know, there's that, there's that reputation. Are, are you making that distinction? Or are you approaching your genre fiction as literary? Is there, is there any kind of a difference there between the two for you? I'm kind of cross-hybridizing, if I'm using the word correctly. I'm mixing them. Yeah. Um, I don't make... Obviously, obviously, there are stylistic distinctions between genre fiction and literary fiction that are objective. But I think it's important not to make judgmental distinctions about them. Mm -hmm. I do distinguish them as just two different types of literature written for different purposes. So literary fiction is used is written for purpose of more of an artistic expression or exploration. And it's more experimental in that way. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, genre fiction is sort of the descendant of literary fiction in that someone said, I like this piece of literary fiction. I'm going to toss out all the things that sort of bore the reader or didn't work as part of the narrative. And I'm going to keep the other things. So it's sort of a distilled, succinct um, uh, version of literary fiction. Yeah. Um, so, but the, 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 the discipline of writing within the confines of genre fiction are just as important as the artistic um, choices you may have made writing a literary piece. So um, I see them both as being completely valid and I don't see much of, sometimes the stylistic distinctions between them are actually really wide and gray and vague. One good example that I can think of is Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*. It's or any of his novels. Um, he writes western. He wrote westerns, but *The Road* is an apocalyptic. It's a piece of apocalyptic science fiction, but he doesn't go into the science to explain what happened with the apocalypse. He just goes straight into the characters and what they're doing, and right. so on. And the effect, the emotional effect on the reader, at least on me, was just emotionally devastating. It was just biblical. It was just like a horrifying book, but also really sad. It had the effect, the same effect as literary fiction. So it's like his works are actually literary fiction in the guise of genre fiction or genre fiction in the guise of literary fiction or something in between. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot that you can use from either type of writing to make good literature. And I think most people, when they read books, they don't really care whether it's genre fiction or literary fiction. They just want to write a, read a good story. 
And sometimes you can get elements of that from literary pieces. And sometimes you can uh, use the wisdom of the, the economy of narrative from the genre piece, from genre fiction, and make something that's kind of unique. And uh, that's what I try to do. You know, time will tell if I'm really successful in that. Well, and the other aspect of that between uh, telling a good story and other types of things, because this this came up this came up uh, as a matter of debate uh, a few years ago with the Hugos, for example, where we're are we are we telling a good story that entertains, or are we telling a story that checks off political and ideological and and lecture boxes, and the message becomes the priority over the story. And that's the other kind of a choice that you've got to make as a writer is, okay, well, what kind, what kind of approach am I taking here is to go – because ultimately what the reader takes away from the story is not necessarily what you might intend. And how do you, how do you balance between if I want to just tell a good romp or if I want to actually have an impact with this, did did you find yourself uh, juggling any of that in in, in this book? Um, I decided that I really wanted to make it a good story in the sense of a, of a genre of a genre piece. I didn't want to lose the reader in any exposition. There is exposition, but I wanted to tie it to certain actions. Like there's a lot of exposition when he's when Arsalan is ruminating about his past. Mm. But you know, while he's ruminating, he's just kind of dwelling in his cabin on top of this mountain and is exiled. So that you're not really lost about what he's doing. He's just sitting, sort of, sort of biding his time, biding his win- his time during the winter away in his cabin, yeah. and he's thinking about this. So those are some choices I had to make. Like, yeah, I want to do a flashback to his past, and I want to talk about his relationship with his ex-wife or his wife. And I want to talk about his his. I want to talk about his relationship with his kids, but never lose sight of what's going on in the story. Some authors will just go straight into exposition, and you'll completely lose sight of what's actually happening. That's a choice that you can make or not. Sometimes it's a valid choice. Sometimes it doesn't work. Um, that happens in literary fiction. I mean, I haven't read uh, Thomas Pynchon or who's the other one, the one who did Infinite Jest. But I imagine that's what those books might be like. Um, it all—it's all about what kind of story you want to read, yeah. and what kind of impact you want to want to have on people. So, it, I guess the economic wisdom is that if you wanted to have a broader impact on people, like immediately, you wouldn't want a, a more story-based or plot-based, uh, or actually, plot-based story um, instead of a character-driven one. Um, so. I tried to have a mixture of the two and it's, it's all, it's, 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 it's all depends on how do you write it? Like for instance, I think I read uh, the book version of 2001, a space odyssey a long time ago. Sure. And um, there's a science fiction. I mean, there's a science fiction narrative that explores all depths of philosophy and man's place in the universe and um, the, the nature of artificial intelligence and the possible nature of, you know, extraterrestrial life, it goes into all these things all at once. And it's still a narrative. Yeah. It's still telling a story about somebody doing something. I mean, the movie breaks from narrative here and there. And, you know, people, you hear a lot of breathing and people floating through space. 
but it's it's still kind of interesting. It's an ex it's a different visual experience. Sure. But the book, you can still delve into all these these issues and problems and questions while leading the reader through a story that they might actually enjoy. I think it's still possible. Now, are you are you talking about the book 2001 A Space Odyssey or the short story The Sentinel? Um, I I had the paperback novel of 2001, the book, okay. the actual right. book. So that yeah. was yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, and it's and it's interesting too because there there are things that you can do with short stories that you might not think about doing in in your long form stuff in your novels and there are things that you can do in novels that you can't necessarily do in short stories so it's it's always that you know six of one half does the other where where do i strike the balance on how long this story is going to be uh and if you're planning it out just a little bit four or five chapters ahead you're you know you're you're coming in at 308 pages on this one did you expect it to be a, about where it landed um, yeah, actually, but that's actually not how I started writing books in the first place. It was kind of strange. Uh, the way I wrote the first book was that I just started to write a short story and I actually ex expected it to be two or three pages or four or five pages or maybe, you know, several thousand words, but then it kept growing and growing and growing organically. And I wanted to add this part. Then I had this idea that I wanted to add to it. And then I had this sort of atmosphere I wanted to add to it. It grew by itself. And then the next thing I knew, I had like 197,000 words. Mm. And um, and I thought, I never thought I could do this before in my life. This was actually kind of amazing. And then I wrote um, another one. Actually, Arslan's, actually, yeah, another one. It was a different type of book. And then, um, but for Arsalan, it was more of a, it was more, it was far more planned. I didn't think I didn't really believe in my ability at first to write a full-fledged fantasy novel. So I thought I'll give it a shot. And so I did the sort of four or five chapter in the future planning thing. And it sort of worked out for me. Um, I just thought I wanted to be about the size of a book. That was my, <laughs> that was my goal. Uh, I didn't have a word count in mind. I usually don't have a word count in mind, but typically I guess I'm just really being vague because when I, when I start to write something, I actually don't have much of an idea of how long it's going to be. Yeah. I actually, my real, my real um, goal is just to write a good story, whether it's a short story or a novella or a novel or whatnot. So it turns out to be however long it is, but it's strangely enough, Arslan turned out to be about as long as I wanted it to be, you know? And I thought, okay, well now it's, it's this long. I guess I'll stop it here. It doesn't, of course, stop mid story or anything like that, right. you know. But it's a good. I thought it was a healthily sized story. Yeah. So when you get to that point where you say, "Okay, this 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 is enough of a story," uh, are you are you at the point there where we're going to end the story, or we leave it open for part two? I left some open for part two, actually. Um, I did a Hollywood thing where there were certain strands I left a little bit unresolved towards the end. Um, and um, so it's a story where it's, well, the, the other thing I wanted to do was to get across the idea or to present the idea that stories never actually end. Um, drama happens 
you know, a, a drama is resolved, mm -hmm. but then when, when you solve a problem, typically three or four other problems are, are spawned by the solution to the problem. And that's the way life goes. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, I don't know, maybe you, uh, a, a treasure seeker goes to find the treasure and he finds the treasure on a mountain in the middle of a, in a, of a, of an island in the sea, brings the treasure home, everything's great, that's the end of the story. But suddenly he's wealthy, then he has to deal with wealth. And then maybe that affects his relationships with people and uh, um, he has to run, he has to deal with, you know, uh, federal income tax, you know, whatever happens <laughs> to, to, as, to, right. as to the the gaining of the wealth. Yeah, so um, suddenly he's got 12 relatives he didn't know he had. Exactly. Yeah. And it can go on and on. Not that you're trying to draw like a soap opera or anything like that. But I also wanted to, I just wanted to get across the idea that things, you know, the journey starts, it goes, it, but it doesn't really end. It actually just changes form. Sure. So there's really no end to it. So that naturally leaves open, leaves open the, the possibility of, of sequels. And, it, you know, very convenient, of course, but, you know, I, I, I didn't want to close off that possibility. No. Now, on your, on your website, you talk about, you describe your work as being thought-provoking fantastical fiction. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, what, and I know readers have their own interpretation of works, but is there anything in particular that you're hoping that people take away from Arsalan the Magnificent at the end when they're they're done, what is it that you want them thinking about? I want them to think that um, heroes aren't necessarily likable. They're not necessarily uh, people that we can, it seems that we can relate to simply because they don't resemble us in terms of age or gender or beliefs. But we can still understand them and in a sense kind of love them in a way um, or relate to them because of just the normal just our propensity for human empathy um, heroes aren't perfect you know they have flaws sometimes they can we can actually dislike the protagonist in some ways sure in the same way we dislike tony soprano but we can't stop watching tony soprano because <laughs> he's such a compelling person yeah and um and, and um so that I wanted to get across, and I also wanted to get across ideas about violence versus pacifism. I don't actually resolve that. I just throw up some questions. What, um, um, what is, why, you know, when we fight a war, what does it mean to fight a war? What does it mean to actually have combat with someone? You know, can we actually resolve things in a way that is not violent? You know, maybe the answer is no. You know, but I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of raising that question. Um, I'm raising the question of um, if magic does actually exist in a world like ours, how does it change the economy, society? How does it affect uh, our culture? Um, and um, I also have a lot of strong female characters. I thought maybe, you know, I wanted to, have, I wanted a lot of, I mean, Arslan is a male character and I wanted to, to have surrounded with a lot of strong female characters so that it wouldn't be more like, you know, like the fellowship of the ring where it's yeah. like, you know, 13 guys. And uh, so I wanted women to be able to identify with the story as well. Um, so there are a lot of different things. 
um, all tied together. And I think that's the power of novels to explore many different issues and philosophies at the same time. It's sort of an encapsulation of thought. So what's next for you? Are, are you working on a sequel or you got something completely different? Um, I have two other books that I haven't released yet. So I'm, I guess I got to put those through. Um, I have to publish those. But um, and it, an idea I have in mind for a sequel, and I know I'm being rather vague. I don't want to reveal too many elements of the story. That's why I'm, I'm just kind of, uh, it feels like I'm tiptoeing around you know, a hole or something like that. Well, there's nothing wrong but, with that. That's, that's, yeah. that's teasing your market. That's the, uh, yeah. you know, get them, get them interested and have them buy the book. Yeah. Arsalan does have three offspring, two sons and a daughter. Um, and after the action is done and everything is, um, is kind of resolved at least for the present moment, um, there's an, I uh, have an, an, an idea for an adventure for his daughter. Definitely. Um, and Daphne seems to have some issues towards the end, um, owing to and, and, uh, something she inherited from her father, and also some, for some actions that she may have committed um, during the or towards the end of the novel. Mm. And um, so, I was thinking of writing a, a, a novel if this one takes off and is successful about uh, the adventures of Daphne, his, his daughter. Well, something to look forward to, I guess. Anything, Hopefully. anything outside of this universe? Have you, you said you got a couple of other books that are that are in the works that are ready to publish. Oh. Yeah, the first book I wrote. Yeah, sorry about that. The first That's book okay. I wrote is is sort of like um, a Franz Kafka or Bruno Schultz like book, and it's about it's a dreamlike type of fantastical fiction or actually i should say it's more like magical fiction mm. which is different from fantasy it's more like things magical things happening in the real world right. that are no one tries to explain that they just they just uh, illustrate an emotional truth but it's a it's a lot like bruno bruno schultz and um i wasn't settled on a title it was the first the working title was elephantus but the uh, the title i kind of settled on was uh, uh, drinking solace from the sh craters of shadow it sounds very evocative but i might actually change that too because it might be a little long uh it's it's, it's very, very literary sounding it is very literary so i might actually change it <laughs> um if, depending on the market i'm going after no um so but it's about grief and dreams and the relationship between them you know when you're grieving um due to bereavement um what your dreams are like and how dreams are used in the process of grieving hmm. and how grief, the grief process is actually a completely uh, valid and an almost empowering uh, emotional process that everyone has to go through in order for life to proceed. So it, um, this character has it basically, I should say, I guess I should explain a little bit for, for the main character. Time stops a little bit and starts cycling on this one rainy day hmm. and he doesn't, it seems like he keeps falling asleep and waking up at the same day and his family members are going through the same cycle. And one day his uh, mother shows up in this house, but his mother has been dead for seven years. And, um, and he tries his best to try to, to, to rationalize the presence of his mom, but he never gets around to it. And then all sorts of strange things happen that are not physically possible. Um, 
and there's a resolution at the end and it's, it's really difficult to describe because it's so dreamlike that it's it just transmutes and that's just uh it's it was so strange that that's the reason i didn't publish it at first because i didn't think anybody <laughs> would actually want to read this thing because it's so dark and it's so full of grief and weirdness yeah and that's it's exactly the reason why my wife said why don't you write something people were just like <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. and then the, another book i wrote is is about the efforts of a, of a guy, of a researcher, a government researcher to investigate um, the complex rules to a sport. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the uh, synopsis of the second one. Oh, okay. And, it, and yeah. is that, is that the one that, uh, that follows Lovecraft? <laughs> actually, it sounds like it should follow Lovecraft because right. it does actually happen in the twenties oh, or in okay. our, an alternate universe twenties. Um, but nothing Lovecraftian happens. There's no monsters. Sorry. There's oh, no okay. blood and tentacles I mean, coming out of it. Cthulhu football, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's that's the next thing. Yeah. He uh it just follows his his continually thwarted attempts to make sense of this of of the of sport that's played in the southern region of his country. Um that is so complicated that he it's like he can't get his mind around it. Mm. And no matter how much he researches it, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And um, uh, it has this, a really strange, is this strange a, ending. Is it a comedy of sorts, or you know, like it does have comedic elements. Okay, but it's a bit Kafka-esque. Ah. It has elements of, I would say, the trial, but not so much the trial because that's very persecutory. More, more like the castle, where he goes. The land surveyor shows up in this Czech village and tries to do his job surveying land, and is continually thwarted as attempts to get into a castle. Yeah. But there's also elements of, um, I guess, also elements of Bruno Schultz and Hermann Hesse in it, because um, it's very deeply philosophical. Um, so that's kind of where I am with writing. I kind of go back and forth between the philosophical and strange to the more straightforward fantasy, as long as it's kind of unreal. I'm kind of interested in it. Yeah. All right. Well, this book will be real on the 13th. It is called Arsalan the Magnificent. And uh, jetilbert.com is the website where you can find more information about that. Uh, Jason is also on Instagram and uh, Facebook. We will put links to all of these in the notes for anybody to investigate more. Jason, thanks very much for being here, sir. Thank you very much. I hope I clarified everything and, and didn't... Uh confuse anyone too terribly much no i think i think it went fine and i'm looking forward to having you on again to talk about the next book okay yeah that sounds great all right all right it was a pleasure live from the bunker we'll be right back on sci-fi for me radio you know this to me is i think is the is a highly relevant question here that's a great question nobody's ever asked me that so well, that becomes a huge, a, a, a huge question. Oh, that's a good point. Wow. Yeah. You, that's, you just, you opened a lot there, a lot to unpack there. I think, Jason, you always do. You, you get this stuff better than anyone. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Sci-Fi for Me Radio. It's better than Goofy Golf.
All right, here we go, ladies and gentlemen, back live. I want to thank Jason Tolbert for uh, sitting down and talking with me. And now you get to sit and talk with me. If you want to, you don't have to. But this is the part of the program we call Open Line, which means that uh, if you are with us live, you can be a part of the program. And I would imagine that some people have some things to say because that's how this works. And if you want to uh, give us your opinion on uh, trailers and whatnot, we can jump in and do that. I do have an update here on the Tomb Raider Remastered. We've got dates. Uh, Tomb Raider and Aspire Media posting over on Instagram and various places the uh, release times. For Tomb Raider 1, 2, and 3 Remastered. For Xbox and PlayStation, uh, it will be. Um, this will be February 14th, is when this is out. 12 a.m. Pacific Time on Switch and Epic. It looks like it'll be 9 a.m. Pacific, and then on Steam, 10 p.m. Pacific on the 13th, which is. Midnight. So, anyway. <clears throat> Gojira says, not in a position to call in, but anyone see the trailer for the latest Apes movie? I did see that. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. <coughs> and this one, this one feels, out of all of the reboot series, this one feels the most like the original in terms of the relationship that the apes and the humans have where the apes are hunting the humans and whatnot. Um, I, I Just a first impression looks pretty good. Uh, we still have, we've been catching up. We just watched, let's see, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. We still have to watch War of the Planet of the Apes. And then Kingdom is the new one coming out. So we, we're, one, we're one film behind... And catching up to make sure that we're uh, where we need to be when this new one comes out. So uh, that's uh, that's where we are. But I, you know, the the trailer looks pretty good. I guess. <coughs> I'm. Th I mean, it, it, just from the aesthetic, some of the different camera shots and and that sort of thing. It it does feel like it has the original Planet of the Apes vibe a little bit more than the others. And I get it. The whole thing is rebooted, and it's not exactly the the movies in the 70s, but uh, getting from point A to point B in terms of how we explain the apes coming up and, and being ascendant, as it were, I think it's it's telling a pretty good story. Yeah, I I you know, good Jerry, I I'm glad you're happy with the trailer. I I like it fine. Um I'm Maybe it's just me. Maybe I have just gotten to a point, gotten gotten of an age where 
it's I I'm I'm more wait and see now than I used to be. And a lot of that is because we've all been burned several times. We've all been burned before. So far, I haven't seen anything in the Apes movies that that makes me think that this is going to be any kind of a disappointment. <coughs> but I I have a tendency to go, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. It was funny because Mrs. Boss was reading off a, a few things, just, you know, articles and some news coverage about the various different commercials that were running yesterday in the Taylor Bowl. And I finally looked at her and I was like, I, I just, I find that I don't care that much about any of this stuff. And she rightly, she, she pointed out that a lot of the things that I tend to care about, not necessarily care about, but focus attention on is stuff that I have to use here. And she's right to a certain extent. It, it is it is a question of things I things that are in my wheelhouse that are relevant to these conversations. <clears throat> but even then, the stuff that's relevant to this program, this channel, I'm paying. I'm paying attention to it. So, you know, I watched the Deadpool trailer. I watched the, uh, you know, Planet of the Apes trailer. I watched the Wicked trailer. I'll go see, you know, we've, we're going to go see Dune Part 2 tomorrow night in the preview screening, press screening. But I don't feel as strong of an urge to do stuff, to, to, oh, I have to go watch this. I have to read this. I have to do this. I don't feel as strongly invested in all of it, any of it, as I used to. <clears throat> and I find that the older I get, in the broader sense, I find the older I get, the less invested I am in any of the cultural stuff, the pop culture stuff, the entertainment stuff, the 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 fluffy stuff, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just I you know we're post lockdown. My my mental shift after the lockdown has been jarring even to me. <coughs> I I am in a place. Mentally and emotionally, that I never thought it would be in the before times. And I find that the most important thing to me is making sure that my family is safe and nobody bothers us. <laughs> you know, it was like, okay. Um, it's, it, well, Death Angel Shadow, it's, I'm not sure that it's apathy. Um, I it's I, it's not so much apathy as it is a realignment of priority. It's okay. There's a lot of stuff out there that I can't control. I can't do anything about in terms of stuff and things. <clears throat> and Minnie and I've talked about it. I I leave the compound much less frequently now than I used to. 
because everything within everything within the walls of the compound I can control. The garden, dogs, I have cameras, I can, I can keep an eye out on everything. I'm here and 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 it's I hate to say it's a defensible it's it's defensible. <clears throat> I don't get out and interact with people and when I do I'm very careful about where I go and and how I'm interacting with people. The mindset has just completely changed. And part of that is looking at all of this stuff. Yeah, it'd be nice to go to the movies. Yeah, it'd be nice. To, yeah. And and yes, I need to take Mrs. Boss out on a date every now and again. That's still on the list of things that are important. But it's go, do, get home. Get back, get back to where I can close the doors and everybody just leave me alone. I'm 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 more of a not necessarily get off my lawn type, but I'm closing the doors so you don't think that I'm here type. I, I it's it's a it's a, it's a weird place for me to be mentally. <coughs> Road Vagabond Life says I enjoy individuals, but I hate being in groups. I well, and and it's it. I can take it in doses. Uh, for example, Mindy and I and, and the kid, we all went uh, Friday night. Uh, the Tim Tebow Foundation does a, a prom every year for special needs individuals, for people who have uh, mental deficiencies and whatnot. And they do this every year, and we go every year, and we videotape stuff at the event, and we send it to the Tim Tebow Foundation. They put together this big montage thing every year. So we're out there Friday night, and there's, I don't know, 2,000 people there. It's a big crowd. And, you know, as I'm wandering around with the camera and I'm shooting my video, I'm in business mode. I'm working, right? I'm, I'm doing my thing because this is, this is what I'm here to do. I'm shooting, I'm shooting video footage for a client. So I'm business mode. So I'm not interacting with a whole lot of people. But if I had just if I was just attending an event, just being there, then I don't know, maybe five minutes, ten minutes, gone, done. I I I put in my time, I said hi to people, and I'm and and I leave. It's hard to get out of that. It's hard to get out of that that not necessarily paranoia, but paranoia about people and how are they going to behave in the public space anymore? Because like we saw, there are some people who didn't behave very well in the public space while all of this stuff was going on. Sci-Fi builds a new name in the chat to welcome. Uh, people are easily offended these days. Yeah, they are. They are. Yeah, you're right. Lockdown has affected all of us. Gojira says it kind of broke me, broke a lot of people. It did. And <clears throat> I, on, on good days, on good days, I don't really think of myself as broken so much as now more cautious than I used to be. 
which makes it a little bit difficult for some goals and priorities because, you know, I don't know how many times we've had these conversations here about, well, do we start going back out and attending conventions? Do we start broad, you know, do we try to make those connections with, with comic cons to, to do some broadcast stuff? And we don't really have the resources or the personnel anymore to do that. At least not now. We might in the future, but it takes money. <clears throat> and it's, you know, making those connections with the events. It, and a lot of them have started doing stuff online all by themselves, all, all on their own. So our our window of opportunity is kind of closed on that front. But you, you sit there and go, okay, well, what do we do? How do we connect with people? Because, you know, you do need to have those personal, interpersonal, in-person connections, interactions with people, so you don't just absolutely lose your mind. It's rough. And if anybody is going through stuff, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to remember that you are not the only one. Boy, this took a dark turn, didn't it? Uh, Mazer says, "Will Star Wars Celebration, where you met Jeremy Griggs, a big expenditure plan event for you." Um, it was so okay. So celebration when we went in 2019, uh, we went to celebration. We had, I want to say that we had. Mrs. Boss, I'll have well, I'll have to check me on this. I think we had one press pass and paid for a second one. I can't remember. It's been a it's been a day or two since we've been there. Um, but the original plan was for me and Mindy and McKenna to all go, the three of us, and then uh, and then Mindy got sick. I think. I think we had one press pass, and then we we paid for another pass. I think is how that went. Um, <clears throat> and then, of course, you got meals and hotel and travel, you know, gas money and and all that. So it was not it was not cheap. It wasn't as expensive as it otherwise would have been if we had bought three passes, for example. Um, but yeah, uh, going out to the comic cons. If we don't have the press pass, it's a much bigger challenge. And a lot of these, a lot of these comic cons nowadays, they don't, they don't do as much in the way of press access because you know, day of or the weekend of, they're not really selling any tickets other than you know, if if you know it's there, you're in town. So people are not traveling; they're either already there. Or they're not coming, <clears throat> and I was like, okay, if we if we, there was a broadcast component to this, you'd have something that you could maybe put behind a paywall, or at least put some some of it behind a paywall or whatnot, so you could you could uh, generate some revenue from people who are not attending. But then lockdown happened, and all of these comic cons started doing that all on their own, 
by themselves. So, and some of them have done better than others. <clears throat> but now we have to figure out, okay, what kind of value do we add? And I have, we haven't been to a, we haven't been to a Comic Con event. I don't think we've been to one at all since since everything happened. I don't think I want to say maybe we've been to one. No, no, I don't think we have. I don't think we have. I don't think we've been to an event since lockdown lifted. Um, so maybe we never will again. I don't. Know. I it you know it never say never. <clears throat> but I don't. I don't know. See the other. The other part of that is not really what. What value do we bring to the comic cons? But the other thing is what value do we bring to the audience? What What value do we bring to you guys? Because if Dragon Con, for instance, Dragon Con does their own online broadcasts from the event, we're not going to add to that because they're already doing it. You know, San Diego Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con or, or C2E2 or any of those. Now, for some of the smaller Comic-Cons, like, for example, Smallville Comic-Con, which is, which is gone now, or, you know, uh, 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 San Diego Who-Con or, you know, so, some smaller con. Maybe there's maybe there's added value there that we could bring, but in your smaller cons, you're not going to have the big marquee celebrity guests, and you know some of that stuff is going to be a little bit more esoteric. So, where's where's the benefit? Where's the benefit for us? Where's the benefit for the audience? That's the key part. What what can we bring? to the table that the audience is going to get from us, they're not going to get from anybody else. <clears throat> uh, one Man Show says, I live alone. Lockdowns restrictions didn't have much impact. I do get your subdued paranoia, though. Well, see, and that's that's the thing. I'm, I'm used to being on my own because I've been... <sighs> the kid's mother and I split in 2012. And I met Mindy... In 2015, 2016, 20, 2015, 2016, when did we do 2016? 2016. So I was four and a half years by myself. I was used to being by myself. I, you know, and I spend most of the time in the studio, in the basement, in the office or whatever anyway. And I was like, I'm, I'm fine. It wasn't until I met Mindy that I realized, hey, maybe I can actually go out with somebody. So when lockdown happened, it wasn't there wasn't much difference for me other than the fact that I wasn't working because freelance work for the networks all went away because nobody was doing anything. ESPN, ABC, all these sporting events and stuff were just gone. <coughs> and then, of course, you have a lot of, you know, keyboard warrior Karens out there going, where's your mask? I was like, I'm just not even going to get out. So, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Gojira says, I thought I was a low-key introvert. Then I was told to stay inside and not interact with people. And there's a difference between needing space and being isolated. You're, that's an excellent point. 
that there is absolutely a difference between you know choosing to be by yourself and being forced to be by yourself um yeah there's a there is something there's something to be said about that <clears throat> anyway all right well um on that note I am going to go be by myself and eat something because I haven't eaten yet. And if Mindy were here, she would probably kick me off the air and say, go eat something because I'm, I need to eat and then go work in the garden. See, that's the other thing. Lockdown has, has gotten me more, uh, more invested in the garden, which is going to be bigger this year. More potatoes, more tomatoes, more peppers, more mustard, green beans. And stuff. All right. Tomorrow on the program, author Tim Akers will be here. We're going to be talking about writing. We're going to talk about the book that he's got that's currently out, the book that's coming out in in the middle of the year, I think in April. Uh, we'll be talking to him tomorrow. He is uh, uh, he's he's been posting some interesting things over on. Over on Twitter, as far as uh, writing philosophies and such, creative process. So we're going to talk to him tomorrow. And then Wednesday, right now, Wednesday, we don't have anything. On Thursday, M.K. Lubb will be here. She's the uh, author of a new book, Disciples of Chaos, which is the second book in a duology. So that's uh, that's coming on Thursday, and then I think on Friday, I think we're going to do an indie comic showcase. So if you know anybody that's doing indie comics, uh, then I think on I think on Friday we're going to do an indie comic showcase, and maybe on Wednesday we'll do a twenty five hundred subscriber stream because we got we're back up to twenty four ninety nine. We just need one more. We just need one more. To get us up to 2,500. It'd be really nice for it to, to roll over live, but, you know, it is what it is. Anyway, all right, that's it for us today, folks. Uh, you can connect with us on the various different social medias, <coughs> different video channels and platforms, and um, there's a newsletter you can sign up for. There's the Discord server. Uh, so go connect with us on all of those places, and we will be back to do this again tomorrow. Thanks very much for being here, everybody. Remember, the politicians hate you. The media lies to you. Nobody won the Super Bowl except the State Department. And God has a plan for you. And there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, copyright 2024, by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.